Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. I'm speaking. I'm joined by Faison, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Faison? Uh, not much. Uh, one topic we've been getting feedback on about was is hearing more of our tech IPO analyses, particularly around those software and ecosystem plays that we work with on a regular basis. So, for example, last year we covered the search and index company Elastic, ticker ESTC. And earlier this year, we covered security company CrowdStrike, ticker CRWD. We basically looked at both those companies from the perspective of software developers and tried to understand their place in the ecosystem, how developers would use them, you know, our general thoughts on the market that they plan and so on. The ESTC one, the Elastic one was interesting to me. Because it kind of showed how, you know, companies can take advantage of being open source and still generate a healthy, profitable business. I don't know. What was your takeaway from that one? Yeah, it was just an interesting look at that sort of business model where the core product is something that's given away and all of the like services surrounding it is is where the money's made. And we've seen that successful with some products that are very popular amongst developers. There seems to be a, a relationship there. So we wanted to cover more of these. And we started looking at kind of like recently filed IPOs. The one that we'll talk about today is Cloudflare. Ticker is NET, which is actually a pretty good ticker. And funny kind of anecdote around that. When I was a banker at UBS for a bit, one of the companies that we took public or they took public was uh, Salesforce.com. Salesforce.com's ticker is CRM, which is kind of perfect for them. That's exactly what they do. So I, was th- I thought that was like kind of a funny, they were like, I remember at the time they were trying to go, th- go through different ticker ideas. And that when everyone heard that, when the company Mark ba- uh, CEO, Mark Benioff, he got super excited. It was pretty funny. So going back to Cloudflare, Fizan, how would you describe what they do? Sure. Um, they call themselves a web performance and security company, which I think is uh, suitably vague. The analogy that I'd like to use is if AWS and your traditional cloud providers are replacing the service that like you having a physical server uh, used to do, then these guys are replacing the connection between that server and the internet, everything that needs to be handled for the web side of things. So I first heard of them through their uh, content delivery network and DNS services, and I would say that's what they're best known for amongst developers but they do provide a large range of services related to routing and delivering content over the web at scale while also providing uh, security primarily against uh, DDoS and bots when delivering those like when delivering that content. Yeah, I remember hearing more and more about them during the crypto boom of like 2017 because a lot of I remember going to a lot of sites and seeing oh this site, like exchange websites and the websites would say this this site is protected by, by Cloudflare. And that was my first kind of like experience with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So I think, you know, a lot of people are listening are already going to know what an IPO prospectus is. But for anyone who doesn't, it's basically a filing with the SEC by a company that plans to go public. It has all the business and financial information that the company is going to disclose to investors. So the S1 is the initial filing. And then those filings get amended over time. Um, Company will file their S1. SEC will come back with questions. Company either amends or responds to questions or a bit of both. So they'll file the S1. And then finally, when all that stuff is clear and ready to go, they're going to file the 424B filing, which is the final IPO prospectus. That's the one that ends up getting printed and given to like Fidelity and Janus and all the companies, all the investment firms that are investing in the IPO. And I'll have the final like print price, which is affected by like how much demand there is for that particular IPO. So the one part of the S1 that's super useful is the prospectus summary. It's right up front. It covers the business, financial concerns, what metrics are important for the company, what risks they might face, and so on. So you can always get a solid overview of the company by just reading through that prospectus. It takes very little time and super, super useful. So now we could kind of like read through this one together. So first off, I'll st- start out with Cloudflare's kind of mission statement overview, I guess. So they say Cloudflare's mission is to help build a better internet. And this is probably a little more vague than the whole web performance and security company point you made earlier. But I don't know. What do you think about these like mission statements in company prospectuses? Yeah, I usually find them a bit vague and very grandiose. Maybe it serves some purpose to someone, but I'm really not sure who. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know you're not a fan of his, but there, you know, Professor Scott Galloway at NYU has a uh, article on the Yoga Babel Index, which inversely relates performance to the BS factor in a mission statement, which is pretty funny. And you know, a recent example being uh, WeWork, where our mission is to elevate the world's consciousness, right. <laughs> <laughs> which would be very high on the on the, B, the BS meter. And obviously, we've seen there's. Uh, you know, what's happened to their shares. Yeah. Whereas their mission is really, we sublease you fancy office space would probably be a little more accurate. <laughs> and demand a SaaS uh, software multiple for doing yeah. that. That one's a crazy story, and I feel like we'll get sidetracked by going into that one. <laughs> yeah, let's, but, not, let's um, not go there, but just <laughs> their mission statement is pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, actually, bring, you know, what, brings to, what comes to mind, though, with this mission statement is Galloway has that Yoga Babel Index and... There are a lot of weird things that are said, you know, elevating consciousness so far, uh, so on is like a pretty weird one. But go back like 15 years, like Google had a really weird one too, which was don't be evil. And I don't know if that's exactly their mission statement, but it's right in the prospectus. I just pulled it up because I was curious, but page 32, they say, don't be evil. We believe strongly that in the long term, we will be better served as shareholders and in all other ways by a company that does good things for the world, even if we forego some short-term gains. This is an important aspect of our culture and is broadly shared within the company. And then they go on to talk about how they're going to make the world a better place and so on. Not once is listed anything about ads, which is basically what they do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to wrap wrap the ads in that. An example of like a good mission statement is Zoom, to make video communications frictionless. It's sufficiently broad, like it covers anything related to video communications, and it pretty succinctly describes like what their product actually does. Right. All right. So back to Cloudflare. So uh, going back to their overview. So they say, today, the Internet is the lifeblood of business and the primary vehicle of commerce and communication for people around the world. And I'm reading this because it's kind of relevant to 
what they do. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But so while it was brilliantly architected to deliver fault tolerance and robust connectivity, it was not designed to deliver the security, millisecond performance and reliability required for businesses today. And then they go on to say, uh, talk about these kind of Band-Aid boxes. Because we've moved past the limitations of the internet, there's all kinds of things that you need to consider when you have a web presence. So they talk about like the VPNs, firewalls, routing, traffic optimization, load balancing, and so on. And then they say, while they created massive complexity, costs, technical debt, and a tangled web of dependencies for organizations that deployed them, the approach generally worked... <laughs> And these on-premise Band-Aid boxes were able to alleviate some of the internet's fundamental security, performance, and reliability pro- problems. Do you think the lawyers that were drafting this were like kind of smiling while they wrote that line? I don't even know what to say there. That like just feels like it's describing like life in tech, right? <laughs> Complexity, cost, technical debt, yeah, tangled web dependencies. But the approach generally worked. <laughs> <laughs> and then they said, then the cloud happened. So they get onto things. In terms of like how handling the internet has changed from being on-prem to moving to the cloud. And then they claim that Cloudflare is leading that transition. So they say, we have built a global cloud platform that delivers a broad range of network services to businesses of all sizes and in all geographies, making them more secure, enhancing the performance of their business critical applications, and eliminating the cost and complexity of managing individual network hardware. Our platform serves as a scalable, easy-to-use, unified control plane to deliver security performance, reliability, hybrid cloud, and SaaS applications. Today, approximately 10% of the Fortune 1000 are paying Cloudflare customers. Additionally, across the broader internet, approximately 10% of the top million, 17% of the top 100,000, 18% of the top 10,000 use at least one product on our platform on a paid or free basis. So what are your thoughts around this description? And in particular, how do you think an early stage startup would use Cloudflare versus like a Fortune 500? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point because they talk about Fortune 1000s and then some large percentage of everyone that's using it. If you look at their product page, it's essentially broken into what I would consider like content delivery and routing and then security. And from the content delivery and routing perspective, I think there's a lot of products that are useful to almost anyone. So an early stage startup, particularly one that is delivering a lot of media or images, would be able to make heavy use of their CDN. I think anyone that cares about not having their internet usage and data tracked would want to switch over from their ISP's DNS to using a third-party DNS. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cloudflare claims that they don't track... uh, DNS usage. So, like, I personally use Cloudflare's DNS for my home computer. So, I'm, you know, not even a startup, but just for personal use. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So, DNS is the service where, you know, when I type in google.com, that's a name, and that name has to resolve to a specific IP address, right? So, when I type in google.com, there's a DNS domain name service which uh, returns to me the actual location. Um, of the server or servers uh, that I'm trying to access. So there are multiple DNS providers, but it's a somewhat centralized step in usage of the internet. And your DNS providers tend to be your ISPs. Then there's a couple of big companies like Cloudflare and Google that also provide uh, DNS services. So you can change your default DNS to use one of these providers. Now, your ISP is basically using DNS as a way of tracking all of your 
internet usage. Mm -hmm. And I think in most jurisdictions, they're free to sell the data or use it however they want. And the more and more we see, the more we realize that like third parties just having open access to all of your information has never turned out to be good. Yep. So personally, as a precautionary measure, I prefer using services like VPNs and DNSs that allow me to not just broadcast all of my activity to like some for-profit entity. Yep. So you can just change your your who your DNS provider is so that when you type in google.com, it uses a different server to look up the uh, IP address. Gotcha. And if you're using a trusted one, you're also more or less likely to be, uh, you know, that's a point of weakness where someone can perform an attack by resolving that DNS to the wrong server. So by using a party you trust more also adds security beyond just not selling your data. Did you look into this China network thing? I'm looking at their products. It's just kind of off on its own. Yeah, so it looks like they provide similar services that are like essentially China compliant because there's a whole separate set of uh, you know restrictions with operating there. Right. Probably you can't private like you know how I'm just talking about how not being tracked. Yeah. There's probably a certain amount of that that you can't do operating in China. Right. But yeah, and to your original question about how an early stage startup used Cloudflare versus a Fortune 500, assuming this early stage startup is still delivering content uh, they're still going to make use of the CDN. You get those nice features out of the box like bot and DDoS protection that I think are useful for everyone that is concerned about being attacked. The specific example you used about cryptocurrency exchanges, those were early stage startups that were very vulnerable to you know DDoS attacks or any sort of uh, security issues. So having a layer of defense was helpful early on. And then uh, if you look at their more advanced products, there's a security stuff or access stuff that are a little more enterprisey that replace like your traditional corporate VPNs or firewalls or uh, like user access control systems that I think are much more specific for a larger company. Yep. So another nice part of their prospectus summary is this um, our industry section, which uh, you know a company will use to describe their role and within the context of their industry's history. So they open up this section with an ominous: the internet was not built for what it has become. So we talked about this a little before, but we always joke like if people really knew how the internet worked, it would freak them out. What do you think they meant by this? Well, I mean. There's a number of layers where both security is an issue and where people's data is being collected and sold. So like, I think that part of it is pretty alarming. You know, the, what we mentioned about DNS, uh, man-in-the-middle attacks, that sort of thing. But then there's this whole new era of, because you have so many IoT devices and routers that are insecure, that you have these like swarms of bots that are used for DDoS attacks. We already mentioned DNS not being secure. And we also have all these new technologies like AMP and even CDNs that are used to deliver content in a performant way that sort of break the traditional server-client contract. You know, I'm getting stuff in either some compressed version or, you know, from a CDN, it's not actually going to the server, actual server I'm requesting the data mm -hmm. from. So you have this complex web of how things are routed and how content is delivered that isn't so like just I make a request, I resolve the DNS, and I go fetch the data. There's layers of complexity that have been added. All right, so let's get into some more specifics then. So they have a section called uh, Why We Win, which kind of lay out what they think their competitive advantages are. So we'll just go through this one one by one. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. So the first one is disruptive business model. 
Our business model is designed for efficiency. Our network and product flywheels create virtuous cycle that has driven down our unit costs over time while we increase the diversity and quality of our products. We believe that our serverless platform flexibility, as well as our aligned interests with our ISP partners, allow us to continue to become more efficient as we expand our network. At the same time, this architecture allows us to add new products and features across our platform without significant additional operating costs. What do you think about this one? All right. So first of all, I don't know what a product flywheel is, but it's creating a cycle, a virtual (laughs) cycle. Okay. (laughs) So that's good, I guess. Yep. The main takeaway that I understood here was they're just taking a slice of the network stack and providing all the services you would need on top of that and layering it with great UX. So once you start using one of their things, it's a lot easier to use more. And the nature of the services they're providing require partnering with ISPs. So by already having that penetration, it allows them to more easily add more partners and also more services across partners. We'll talk about like more risks in a bit, but what's the risk here with the ISP? Does it benefit the ISP to kind of take this in-house? Does it benefit them to partner with Cloudflare? Like trying to understand the role there, I guess. I think it benefits them to partner. Essentially what's happening is with stuff like the CDN is they're probably putting in hardware at the ISPs, like uh, actual, you know, what it, what's it called? Um, like data center. location. But yeah, like at the actual, where the cables go yep. out to the people. <laughs> and, um, like Netflix does that the same thing. Cloudflare is doing that for their CDNs. So I don't see the downside to the ISPs because it's not a business that like, ultimately the ISPs need someone like this that has global scale. And most of the ISPs don't to actually sell to customers. Like I don't, wouldn't want to be buying CDN services from 50 different ISPs. I just want to go to Cloudflare and have them deal right. with it. So I think this is a positive for the ISPs. All right, number two. So we talked about disruptive business model. Okay, number two is ease of use. A new customer can sign up in minutes regardless of its technical ability or budget. I largely agree. I've used them for projects. They have a great UX compared to the competition. A lot of their stuff is inexpensive or free. I always would, I don't know about regardless of technical ability. Uh, You need some technical ability, but it's... Relative to the competition, I think they are definitely uh, easier to use. So I would give them that. And so who is the competition here? So there's a number of uh, CDN providers. Your biggest direct competition, I would say, is going to be companies that are already providing cloud services. So like AWS has CloudFront, which is a CDN service. And then uh, you're also, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Akamai. Uh, is likely to provide yeah that seems like the kind um, of thing similar do. stuff yeah so anyone that's doing like th- that sort of network edge services yep. or uh, the regular cloud cloud providers as well number three efficient go to market model our go to market strategy is designed to efficiently address the broad market we serve what do you think about that one without them saying more about it it's a little bit vague but my interpretation is that. Once you start using, say, their CDN or DNS, there's a number of follow-on products that start making sense to use as you grow. And the products that get your foot in the door are very self-serve. Mm-hmm. So like, it's not like I'm being pitched by a salesperson to start using their CDN. I can just set it up on my project and then uh, might go from there. Yep. 
Yeah, I guess they do talk about that. The rest of that statement is uh, our self-serve offering coupled with our attractive pricing allows customers to easily adopt our products. We augment our self-serve offering with a highly productive sales force to serve larger customers. Yeah, I know you had all that crossed out, but I still read it. So that's yeah. why I was able to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, product innovation and velocity. We drive product innovation by continuously improving our platform through machine learning. Oh, God. And, and diverse customer <laughs> feedback. Our systems learn from every request that passes through our network. I'm surprised the lawyers are cool with that, that line. This allows us to automatically... I almost read it as automatically because that's what it sounded like. Mitigate new attacks, optimize protocols for the best performance, and reroute traffic to avoid network outages. Many of our free customers volunteer to test new features early in the development cycle, which allows to ensure product excellence before deploying to our paying customers. A few things going on there, but I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is just a classic case of by being at scale, if they really have a significant chunk of internet traffic, then they're able to observe all the various trends when it comes to how our bots behaving or making, you know, blacklists of IP addresses or any other pattern recognition or like traffic recognition that's going to help them with security. So it makes sense. The bigger they grow, the more they should be able to optimize their performance and security offerings, which is going to give them an advantage. What do you think their ML is here? I don't know. But I would imagine that at their scale, they're able to do stuff with like just explicitly maintaining blacklists of like these are known bots or these are known bad IP addresses and also do some sort of anomaly detection on their traffic or, you know, pattern recognition type stuff mm -hmm. to help flag any like incoming attacks. Because the whole idea of using like their DDoS protection is how do you filter out all the bad traffic while still like having the site up? Yep. Number five, integrated global offering. Our network spans 194 cities in over 90 countries, and this flexible serverless platform offers the same set of core features in every city and country. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this one? I didn't think this was anything groundbreaking. Right. Like I said before, like I wouldn't want to go to 50 different CDN providers on like a regional basis. I would want... Like I would expect any network services provider that I use to have a global footprint. Like when I use AWS, I know they have regions all over the world that I can have as my primary or, you know, have redundancy across different regions. And it's anything like at this sort of web scale, you expect to be global. Yep. So I, I think this is just like a minimum expectation, not anything that they're doing that's amazing. Right. And number six, trust and neutrality. As businesses move to the cloud, there are increasing concerns over interoperability and avoiding being locked into any one public cloud vendor. We empower customers to overcome these concerns through our independence and neutrality. Moreover, unlike some public cloud providers, our business model aligns with the interest of our customers. We don't sell user data, nor do we aim to compete with our customers. Yeah, so this goes back to, you know, their big competition is going to be cloud infrastructure providers moving into like what let's call this like the web traffic infrastructure and you know their line about our business model aligns with the interests of our customers i'm not sure how their business model aligns with their customers more than say in aws yep to me both are pretty aligned in the sense that as the customer grows it's better for aws or, or you know gcp or whoever you have similarly it's good for cloudflare the we don't sell user data and you're not locked into any one public cloud vendor, I think that is a big deal. You know, I think a lot of people like to just 
do everything on GCP or everything on AWS, there's probably some benefit on not being reliant on one. Yep. But beyond that, I don't know the alignment thing, how strong of a point that is. What do you think? My question around this is like, say I'm on, uh, say the majority of our platform is on AWS and we use Cloudflare for like CDN purposes or wh- whatever is we, we DDoS protection, whatever we decide to use them for. And then we're not happy with AWS anymore. We can move to GCP or whatever and still have protection from Cloudflare. Is that the right scenario that they want to allow customers to deal with? And like how regular of a scenario is that? Yeah. So I, I think it's dependent on your specific like requirements. I think some customers don't care that much. It's, you know, if AWS goes down, we go down and that much downtime is acceptable. And then, you know, we've had clients where no, everything needs to be redundant beyond like a single data center or even a single cloud provider. So everything has to stay up. So I think that's just dependent on the requirements of the given company or project. I mean, I remember a case where we had a client where the day we were supposed to launch our demo, S3 went down and that really sucked. Yeah. Because we were serving no static content. So having, you know, that would have been a great time to have a backup in place. Right. They also have the section that they call growth strategy. And I think, you know, most of these are pretty straightforward, don't need a whole bunch of extra commentary, but they're things like acquire new customers. Yes, obviously expand relationship with current customers, develop new products. And this fourth one, which I think is uh, the probably worth talking about, which is extending our serverless platform strategy. So they say, we have opened our serverless platform to outside developers with a product called Cloudflare Workers. This enables our customers to write and deploy their own code in seconds directly onto our global cloud platform and have it run close to their users. We have seen a growing number of customers bring applications to market using Cloudflare Workers. This opens up an entirely new market for us, compute and storage. So that sounded pretty interesting. What did you think of that? Yeah, this one's interesting because, uh, you know, I, I just glanced into it and it looks like it just supports JavaScript, which means it can be served the same way as static assets are served over a CDN, which probably limits what you can do. But it's an interesting, if you're, say, a media site that needs some basic compute and storage capability, but don't want to build out something more heavy duty on AWS. So if you're building like static sites plus some functionality you're able to do so within the context of just using like Cloudflare's existing infrastructure. And I think we're going to see that more and more because we're seeing a demand for serverless applications and a lot of what they're doing are not that backend heavy. So I think they definitely have their their niche here. Can you give like kind of a more specific example of what, like how this might be used, I guess? Yeah, so without understanding exactly how this Cloudflare workers works, Essentially, what I'm seeing is you can essentially write JavaScript code that would act like backend code that would get executed in an instance of a Cloudflare worker. So it's not something that's necessarily delivered to the front end. Yep. But I could ship, say, a React application that talks, that triggers something on a Cloudflare worker that causes an update. Like I need to fetch the, I have a live feed of news and I need to do some processing on it and then pass it back through. Yep. Like maybe I'm automatically translating um, some raw uh, media stuff that's being streamed in. So any sort of like lightweight backend work that needs to be done before being delivered to the front end, uh, I can see being put in something like this. Interesting. So all 
Back to the prospectus. So every prospectus will have risk factors, which are these list of concerns that the company and the company's lawyers have. Most of these are going to be pretty boilerplate. Like if we're unable to attract new customers, you know, our future results of operations could be harmed. And I guess that's the most boilerplate of them all. But there'll be things like we've never been profitable and we might not ever be profitable, stuff like that. And But there are a few more that are they, they can often get more specific to the business. So I thought we could talk through a couple of these. The first one, the actual or perceived failure of our products to block malware or prevent a security breach could harm our reputation and adversely impact our business results of operations and financial conditions. So I think this one is like one of the more obvious ones for me, but it's also kind of interesting. Like back in the crypto boom of 2017, where we saw every exchange site using Cloudflare, like at that point, if they had failed an exchange and exchange got DDoSed, that exchange would never touch them again. They're going to go look for like a different DDoS protection provider. So this one is like, their business is highly sensitive to them being successful. And every business is, of course, but even the perceived like, this isn't really working for us or they, you know, they weren't able to protect us and we lost custom data. That kind of thing could be really bad for them. Yeah. I mean, for providing performance and security, you need to be performant and secure. Otherwise customers will leave or you might just like your customers may die off. Yeah. Like if you're a new exchange and you get taken down and then everyone takes their funds off. Yep. It's, it's not that you like Cloudflare loses a customer. It's that, they kill a customer. Right. <laughs> so our second one, the second one, if our global network that delivers our products or the core co-location facilities we use to operate our network are damaged or our ability to provide access to our platform and products to our customers and maintain the performance of our network could be negatively impacted, uh, which could cause our business result of operations and financial conditions to suffer. This to me, like, you know, their co-location facilities are very important. They have two separate risk factors associated with them. The other one is detrimental changes or termination of any of our co-location relationships, ISP partnerships, or other interconnection relationships with ISPs could severely impact our business. So I know I think investors need to keep this this one in mind as well. That like if I were going to look into investing in them, I'd want to understand better what their terms are with ISPs, what their terms are with these co-location partners and relationships, like do they own these sites? They seem too small to own all of them. I'm not sure. My understanding is they're going to have hardware in place at the ISP's like physical locations. Gotcha. Yeah, that's how I understand it. All right. So talk about kind of like high level stuff. And then if you get to the numbers, so they have this section called key business metrics and non-gap financial measures. So this is, if, if you are reading along or if you're going to check it out later, this is, uh, it's on page 16 of their prospectus. So this is nice because it's just like a little quick snapshot into their revenue and gross margins and number of customers and all that stuff you just want to see and hope was going up to the right. So their gross margins have dipped in the last like full years, 2017 and 18. They dipped a couple points. I don't know what the reason is. Like it could be that they're, uh, it has to do with their co-location centers. Maybe their terms have changed a bit. I'm not sure, but that's something that we want to look at like on a quarterly basis. And even looking at the last six months, 2018, 2019, they dropped a point. So with revenue rising, I would just be curious to understand, you know, why that happened. Because it goes back to that whole risk factor around their exposure to 
their co-location facilities and relationships. So that was kind of interesting. The other thing is their total number of paying customers. So they print out both total number of paying customers, then also number of paying customers that have more than $100,000 in billings. So going from 2017 to 2018, the full year, they went from about 49,000 to 68,000 total customers, and then 184 to 313 bigger customers. And then in the six months of 18 to 19, probably more you know, recent and more relevant, they've gone from you know 56,000 to 75,000 uh, total customers, and then 240 to 408 uh, large customers. So that was kind of interesting to see. Yeah, their penetration on their existing customers, like converting them to these high-paying customers, seems to be right. pretty good. Like it's yep. improving. So that would be a cool and interesting stat to ask them on their earnings calls um, if uh, what their penetration rate. I think like Elastic had that as well. Uh, I forget what they called it, but it was basically like their ability to like sell into customers they already have. That was going up and to the right for them as well. So be. It would be interesting to see what Cloudflare's version of that is. The thing that was interesting to me about this particular stock, it doesn't, it, it, first off, it feels like there's still a ton of room for the company to grow. Like a lot of these recent IPOs seem to have come out at like the peak. You know, WeWork didn't even come out, but if they did, it certainly would have been the peak. Even if they don't, it sounds like it was the peak. Uh, a lot of, you know, Uber and Lyft and all these companies, like they came out kind of like, People use the term dump on retail, and I think often that's fair. But that's kind of like what was going on to a lot of them. I think these guys are a bit different. It seems like they their penetration's improving. Market share, I don't know what the market share numbers are, but if they are able to sell into existing customers better, that's a positive. And, you know, 75,000 paying customers, 400 of which, which are large, it's still a small market. Uh, sorry, the total market's huge, but that's still, you know, not a high penetration of the total market. So that's why I think this one's kind of interesting. Hey, everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thanks.